Chapter Three of Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons by Robert Belgarni. Chapter Three. Let us know our indiscretion sometimes serves us well, when our deep plots do pall, and that should teach us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. Shakespeare. Mr. Daniel Salt removed from Morley about the year eighteen thirteen. Titus was then nearly ten years of age. To the son, this removal was only a pleasant episode in a boy's history, but it was not so to the parents. To them it was a severe trial indeed, for were they not leaving the old manor-house where their wedded life began, and their children had been born? And then, in the old new chapel burying ground, there were those little graves in which their hearts were left— the cause of this removal from Morley is not precisely known. It might be that Mr. Daniel Salt preferred the country life of a farmer to that of a dry salter, or that his present occupation was unremunerative, and the cultivation of a farm might possibly increase his resources. In this latter expectation, however, he was certainly disappointed." No doubt at that time farming was a profitable occupation to many. The wars with Napoleon Bonaparte then raged, during which prices were high, and fortunes among large farmers were rapidly made. But when peace was proclaimed, prices went down. It was, therefore, at a time of farming prosperity that Mr. Daniel Salt removed from Morley and entered upon the farm of Crofton. Crofton is an old-fashioned village, situated about three miles from Wakefield, on the Doncaster Road, then belonging to Sir Henry W. Wilson, baronet. The farm consisted of about one hundred acres of arable land, with a comfortable dwelling-house and farm offices contiguous. The parish church stands in the immediate neighborhood of which the Reverend Edward Hill was vicar for many years, and from which he was ejected by the act of uniformity for conscience' sake. The death of this saintly man was a very affecting one. He had attained a prolonged age, and was confined to his room. In the same chamber was his wife, who had been bedridden for two years, and was near her end. Mr. Hill left his bed with difficulty to take leave of her, and as he kissed her for the last time, he said, "'Ah, my dear wife, thou hast followed me for forty years. Tarry a little, and let me go before thee.' He was with some difficulty carried back to his couch, and immediately expired, his wife dying within two hours. They were buried at Halifax in the same grave. 
Titus Salt was thus brought again into a locality around which the memories of good men still lingered, and which at his time of life were likely to leave a deep and lasting impression upon his heart. Crofton was also celebrated for a young ladies' boarding school kept by Miss Magnall, who was then widely known not only for the efficiency of her training, but for the popular book on education entitled Magnall's Questions. In the homestead of Crofton other children were born. The nearest congregational place of worship to Crofton was Salem Chapel, Wakefield, of which the Reverend B. Rayson was the minister, a man highly esteemed both for his learning and piety. With Mr. Rayson's congregation and ministry, Mr. and Mrs. Salt were connected, but as the distance was great and the health of the latter feeble, she was unable to attend divine service regularly yet the loss of public worship was made up to her by services conducted in her own house for this a license had to be obtained from the civil authorities to escape the penalties then imposed on those who dissented from the forms of the established church the old manor house morley had been licensed for a similar purpose the following copy of an old form of license is given in Smith's History of Morley. A congregation or assembly of Protestant subjects dissenting from the Church of England do hold their meetings for religious worship on the Lord's Days in Topliffe Hall, Woodkirk, and they hold other occasional meetings at J. Pickering's house at Tingley. Joe Pickering, Thomas Atkinson it was under a license similar to the above that religious services were occasionally conducted in the farmhouse at Crofton, without the use of the Book of Common Prayer. Many hallowed gatherings took place there. The people in the village were free to come, and some who hungered for the bread of life felt it good to be here. The Reverend Mr. Bruce, of Zion Chapel, Wakefield, frequently officiated on these occasions. By him and other good men, the lamp of divine truth was kept alive in this and neighboring places, which, but for such ministrations, had well nigh gone out. Such were the religious surroundings of Titus Salt at Crofton between 1814 and 1818 and those who in after years were struck with the simplicity of his faith his preference for inornate worship his attachment to nonconformity will now see where his principles were planted and how they were nurtured but his secular education had yet to be acquired he had now arrived at the age of eleven, and was sent by his father to the day school connected with Salem Chapel Wakefield. The Reverend B. Rayson, along with the duties of his pastorate, uniting those of a schoolmaster. The school was held in a building adjoining the chapel in George Street, now used as a printing office in a letter from a gentleman still living who was at school with titus the following extract is given 
Mr. Rayson gave up the school at Christmas, 1815, from which time it was conducted by Mr. Enoch Harrison, who had for several years been Mr. Rayson's principal assistant, and with whom young Salt remained some time. His father's residence being upwards of three miles from the school, Titus generally rode on a donkey, which was left until the afternoon at the Nag's Head, a small inn near to the school, bringing with him in a little basket his dinner. In person he was tall and proportionately stout, and of somewhat heavy appearance. His dress was usually that of a country farmer's son, viz. a cloth or fustian coat, corduroy breeches with long gaiters, or, as they were generally called, spats or leggings, buttoned up the side, with strong boots laced in front. He was generally of a thoughtful, studious turn of mind, rarely mixing with his schoolfellows in their sports and play and rather looked upon by them as the quiet, dull boy of the school. His words were generally so few that I cannot call to mind any particular thing that he either said or did. The school was a mixed school for both sexes, the boys occupying the ground floor and the girls the room above, and it was considered the best private day school in the town. At this school his sister Sarah also attended. They rode on a donkey together, and it was probably more for her benefit than his that its help was required. For at Morley, even when he was younger, and the distance much the same, the journey to and from school was performed on foot. But the teacher to whom Titus Salt was most indebted for his education was the Mr. Enoch Harrison above referred to, and this memoir of the pupil would be incomplete were it not to contain a brief sketch of one who did much to equip him for his future career. From Mr. Harrison's own lips we gathered the particulars of Titus's school life at Wakefield. When we saw the former, he was in declining health, yet clear in intellect and retentive in memory. But alas, since that interview which we had hoped to renew, he has passed away at the ripe age of eighty-one years. From the obituary which appeared after his decease, the following extract is taken. It would be no flight of imagination to say that this announcement is calculated to arrest the attention and awaken the sympathies of men and women scattered throughout the entire kingdom, and of others also who long ago left the town to seek and find their fortunes in distant lands. It would, in fact, be difficult to place any limit to the number of those who owed, in great part, their chief and lasting possessions to an early association with Mr. Harrison. Some of our most distinguished townsmen of past and present times have been proud to tell that when boys they attended his school, and to that circumstance attribute hardly less than to their own personal virtues, their ability to rise in the world of business, politics, or religion, 
and their safeguard from the manifold influences which, yielded to, have made wrecks of others. Mr. Harrison made the training of youth his one great life-work. It was the sphere from which he never departed. All the resources of a capacious mind, a retentive memory, and a calm judgment were devoted to the duties of the desk and the classroom, and were never suffered to be dissipated by any foreign considerations. The result was what it could only be, certain and ample success. His teaching was eminently substantial. His pupils were grounded in the several branches of learning to which their attention was directed, and all that was undertaken was thoroughly done and severely tested. Among those who passed through Mr. Harrison's school we may mention the late Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, Wakefield Express, of 26th May, 1877. Such is the merited tribute paid to this remarkable schoolmaster under whose care Titus Salt spent four years of his life at Wakefield. The instruction imparted was what was recognized as a plain commercial education, including history, geography, and drawing. If any of the pupils wished to study the classics, they were permitted to attend the grammar school, of which Dr. Naylor and Dr. Sissons were the masters. Mr. Harrison had a vivid remembrance of Titus Salt, of whose career he was justly proud, and whom he occasionally visited, both at Methley and Cronest in after years. It may also be said that the pupil was proud of his teacher, of whom he often spoke with respect, and sometimes exhibited to his friends those specimens of drawing and penmanship which, under this tutor's instruction, he had as a boy prepared. When Saltaire was opened, in 1853, Mr. Harrison was among the guests invited to the banquet. But it may be asked, what was Mr. Harrison's opinion of his pupil? He was, says he, never a bright pupil. He was very steady, very attentive, especially to any particular study into which he put his heart. Drawing was his chief delight. He was a fine, pure boy, stout and tall for his age, with a remarkably intelligent eye. So much did his eye impress me that I have often, when alone, drawn it from memory, simply for my own gratification. I have sketches of him somewhere among my papers, with crimped frill round his neck, just as he appeared then, but, though naturally very quiet, he was sometimes given to random tricks. From the foregoing particulars we can form some idea of Titus Salt at the age of fifteen. It is a well-known saying, The child is father of the man, which in this case was abundantly verified, for the traits of character observable in his youth were not less conspicuous in his manhood. A very steady boy he was, and the germs of a great future were hidden in him. Steadily he jogs along the Doncaster road, every day to school on his donkey, 
with his sister behind on the pillion. We may be sure he was always in time, for punctuality was the rule of his life. What though he might be regarded as the dull boy of the school? Thus it was with Isaac Newton and Thomas Chalmers in their schoolboy days. Of the former it is said that when at the grammar school of Grantham, he was always at the bottom of the class until he received a kick from another boy, whom he punished by getting above him. There were latent powers in the mind of young Titus that some day would be evoked, but he gave no sign of precocity or genius such as mark the early life of some distinguished men. It was not at a leap that he was to outstrip other men, but by hard work and resolute perseverance. Is not this an encouragement to young men who hesitate to start in the race for wealth and honor among so many brilliant competitors? Know this from Titus Salt's character and career, that the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but that nothing is lost to well-directed and steady effort. Nothing is to be obtained without it. Note also that he was successful in those studies into which he put his heart. Thus it was with him in after life. It was by concentrating his mind and heart on one object that he excelled other men, and made for himself a name amongst them. One thing he did at a time, and because of this he did it well. Were his words always few? It was not by these he was to become great. Of mere talkers the world has always enough. Words are breath, but thoughts have life that endures. Was his attire plain and neat in boyhood? He had no affectation of dress in manhood, he wore nothing for mere show, and what suited his taste once was not superseded by something more attractive afterwards. Was he a pure boy at fifteen, in speech, in feeling, and in sentiment? Those who knew him best in after years can testify that anything in the way of untruthfulness, indelicacy, or dishonorableness his soul abhorred. As for the remarkably intelligent eye that the schoolmaster was struck with in his pupil, it was not less so in manhood and old age. It was an eye large, clear, and searching which, when calm, beamed benevolence, but when troubled, was equally capable of inflicting its ire on those who excited it. Titus Salt was now seventeen years of age, and the question must be settled, what is he to be? He had no fortune to fall back upon, and if one was to be acquired, it must be by his own efforts. His father's circumstances, though not straitened, were not affluent. Indeed, the farm at Crofton did not pay, but brought loss to the tenant. An old acquaintance, still living at the age of ninety-two, remembers Mr. Salt complaining of the badness of the times, since the close of the war. Yes, he said in his own peculiar way, 
a man might have bread and milk to breakfast and supper but that is not a living while therefore it was evident that his son titus must do something for his livelihood it was not so easy to decide what had he no predilection of his own yes it appears he had for some time cherished the purpose of being a doctor in which case his education was only now at an incipient stage and a considerable outlay of money must yet be incurred one cannot help speculating as to what position titus salt would have occupied in the medical profession had his first intentions been carried out his keen insight calm judgment and decision of character were qualifications most likely to ensure success in such a profession indeed whatever occupation in life he had chosen and put his heart into would have led to distinction but the question so important both to father and son was to be taken out of their hands the lot is cast into the lap but the whole disposing thereof is of the lord an accident apparently trifling determined his future course one day he happened to be cutting a piece of wood with a sharp knife which slipped and inflicted a deep wound in his hand blood flowed profusely the sight of which made him faint his father coming in at the time exclaimed titus my lad thou wilt never be a doctor in this opinion the son acquiesced and henceforth the idea of entering the medical profession was abandoned to what occupation was he then to turn his attention wakefield had long been celebrated for its wool market while the trade of the district was in a flourishing condition but as hand-loom weaving then prevailed the business of wool stapling was of course much restricted when however steam power was introduced and manufacturing processes assumed gigantic proportions the trade generally migrated into larger centres and that of a wakefield gradually slipped away still it had not entirely removed in the year eighteen twenty when titus salt was placed with mr jackson of wakefield to learn the wool stapling business it was in mr jackson's warehouse that his first knowledge of wool was obtained and in connection with which his fortune was to be made this knowledge however was of a limited kind wool sorting formed no part of his duty so that his chief occupation consisted in supplying small customers with wool and in the keeping of accounts the farm at crofton continued to decrease in value and nothing remained for mr salt but either to go on farming at a loss or give up the lease the latter course he resolved to take but the landlord interposed objections to it so that the tenant was obliged to remain on the farm till the lease expired then came the question as to what his own future occupation was to be after the experience acquired and the losses sustained at crofton he had no heart to take another farm 
he could not return to morley for his brother-in-law robert smithies had succeeded to the business and now occupied the old manor-house there seemed little opening in wakefield whither his son had gone to learn wool stapling and where trade was rapidly declining but while these doors were apparently shut another and a wider was opening which invited him to enter bradford was just entering upon that wonderful career of commercial prosperity which is almost unparalleled in the history of english towns the tide of population capital and enterprise seemed flowing thither from many quarters mr salt resolved to take it at the flood and to migrate with his family to this important centre of industry thus his son's connection with wakefield was brought to a close and bradford was henceforth to become the scene of his remarkable course in life but before proceeding to trace his bradford career we cannot close this chapter without directing the attention of young men to the stock-in-trade he was to begin with it is said of a distinguished artist that when asked how he mixed his colours his prompt reply was with brains sir titus salt had brains which gave shape to his lofty forehead and force to his massive power of will he had also a sound constitution robust health and a cheerful countenance but along with these he possessed fixed principles of right and honour moral qualities of dutifulness amiability and kindness religious qualities of reverence and benevolence business qualities of thoroughness punctuality perseverance and energy educational qualities of method and precision with these and by the help of god he entered upon the business of life boast not the titles of your ancestors brave youth there their possessions none of yours when your own virtues equal to have their names twill be fair to lean upon their fames for they are strong supporters but till then the greatest are but growing gentlemen ben jonson end of chapter 3